Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let us listen for the word of God. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they, came down, so they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to, to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken away from you, it will be granted. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Let us listen again for God's word to us. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. 
Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. This is the word of the Lord. It began like any other day. By this point, they had been following Jesus for quite some time and had seen and heard some amazing things, some things that they could barely even believe. But even still, they weren't quite sure what to make of Jesus. A few days earlier, Jesus asked them what what they had heard, what the people were saying about him, who they were saying Jesus was. And so the disciples told him that some said he was John the Baptist, and others said that he was Elijah. And still others were saying that he was one of the prophets. And then he asked them the question that they had all been secretly and quietly asking themselves the whole time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up first, giving voice to the hope that was heavy on all of their hearts. But no one else would dare speak aloud. No one else would dare admit publicly. He said, you are the Messiah. And then strangely, Jesus sternly ordered them to tell no one about this. And then Jesus began to tell them all about how the Son of Man would experience great suffering and rejection. And again, Peter speaks up. This time, he privately pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him for what he was saying, for suggesting that he might suffer and die. Peter can't even begin to fathom that the one that he has just proclaimed to be the Messiah would experience this kind of suffering and death. So while Peter rebukes Jesus in private, Jesus then rebukes Peter quite publicly for all to hear, and then proceeds to tell them all that if they want to be his disciple, they have to deny themselves take up their cross, and follow him. Now, from our privileged perspective, from the perspective of 2,000 years of history, the call to take up one's cross we know is difficult, but we also know that resurrection follows the cross. But for the disciples, hearing this for the first time, not yet even fully understanding Jesus' identity and where it will lead him, this would have been an absolutely scandalous statement for them. Take up our cross? The cross was the worst, most humiliating form of Roman punishment, reserved only for the worst of the worst, political revolutionaries and brigands. How do we even take up our cross and why? What, what, is this, what could this mean? And this is the moment where our story picks up. Six days after this, Peter... Six days after Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah and then rebuked him because he, and presumably the others as well, thought that being the Messiah meant victory, at least a particular type of victory. Six days pass from that moment to this moment. Six long days, and we're not given any indication of what took place in that time. Were they traveling? Was Jesus continuing to heal and teach as he was before? Did they take a little break from the action to regroup and collect themselves? 
there's this huge gap in the narrative that, that we're not told about. We're not given any indication. This huge gap as these questions about who Jesus is begin to swirl about them. And confusion about what is coming overwhelms the disciples. I mean, it's difficult to even imagine what those six days would have been like. What the disciples may have been thinking during that time. And so six days later, Peter, Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside and leads them up this high mountain. Anytime people go up a mountain in the Bible, you can expect something big to happen. And as they go up the mountain, we're not told what their conversation was like, if they even spoke at all, if they asked Jesus, where are we going? What are we doing? But at the top of the mountain, they, they see something. That these disciples see something that they never could have expected. Jesus is transfigured before them, and his clothes become a dazzling white. We're not even sure like, what does it mean to be transfigured. It's kind of this mysterious language. All Mark really tells us is that it, his garments were this color that no one on earth could even bleach that, that, quite that much. Perhaps even glowing in some way or illuminated. And then suddenly they notice that Moses and Elijah are there with them along with Jesus, and they're having a conversation, a conversation that we are unfortunately not privy to because Peter, of course, interrupts. And, you know, it's, it's always seems strange to me that Peter and James and John were somehow able to recognize that this was Moses and Elijah up on the mountain, right? These holy prophets from Israel's past, I mean, they didn't exactly have any pictures or uh, Peter, you know, Moses and Elijah had never been on TV before, so... But somehow they know, you know, in the light of this experience, this powerful, transcendent moment, somehow they just know. And just as before, when Jesus was having these conversations, Peter speaks up and he says very simply, it is good for us to be here. And I always wonder when I read this, what, what tone did he use when he said that? You know, tone is unfortunately one of those things that gets lost in translation when we read a text. You know, you ever received a text message or an email or a letter or something like that, and you're not quite sure how to interpret what it's saying? Right? Like if, if that person were right there in front of you, then maybe you'd have some clue about what they're thinking. Like, do they mean this kind of sarcastically? Are they, are they being kind of mean here? Is this, is this genuine? Like how, do, how do we interpret this? If they're in front of you, you would, you would see their body language. You'd see their facial expressions. You'd hear the tone of their voice, and you would know how to take it, right? But a text doesn't communicate those things. So we're left often to wonder and to guess, right? So with Peter, you know, was he, was he excited? Did he, did he see these, these holy men of old and become just overwhelmed with emotion and, and by the gravity of the situation of what was taking place and say, it is good for us to be here, right? Or was he a bit more somber? Remembering the conversation from six days ago. Realizing that what Jesus had said about himself previously would indeed come to pass. Did he say, it is good for us to be here? You know, we'll make some tents for you guys, right? We can all, we can camp out here. We'll start a fire, make it real cozy. You know, let's, let's never leave this mountain and go back down because if we stay up here, we won't have to face what comes next. It is good for us to be here. 
And you can almost hear his voice maybe trembling a little bit as he says this. And I, I can understand that he must have been feeling many, many different emotions. I mean, to call an experience like this one rare would be a gross understatement. This is a holy moment, one of those rare occasions when the veil that separates heaven and earth is ever so slightly peeled back. We're allowed to get the slightest glimpse, even if out of the corner of our eyes, of the glory that is only slightly beyond us and is always ever before us. The presence of Moses and Elijah on the mountain is a bit strange, but it also makes sense. Not only are these two of the holiest men in Israel's history, but both have been associated at various points with the coming of the Messiah, whom Jesus has just been revealed to be. Malachi 4 explicitly connects Moses and Elijah with what the prophet refers to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. These, these two were also the standard representatives for the law and the prophets. Moses is the great lawgiver. And Elijah has long been held as one of Israel's greatest prophets for many reasons. But especially because, as we saw in today's Old Testament reading, that he never tasted death. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind by God. Now that text from 2 Kings is about the succession of Elijah by Elisha. They, they both know at this point that the end is very near. It keeps coming up throughout the narrative that Elijah will soon be taken away. And that Elisha has been called to take over his prophetic ministry. So on the cusp of their transition, Elijah asks his successor, young Elisha, what he can do for him before, before he goes, before he is taken up. And Elisha, perhaps being a bit overzealous, asks for a double portion of Elijah's prophetic spirit. And Elijah essentially responds by saying that it's not his to give, but that if he sees him, if Elisha sees him being taken up, then that will be an indication from God that his request has been granted. But I wonder if Elisha was even fully aware of what he was asking. You see, Elijah's prophetic spirit got him in trouble many, many times. He spoke truth to power, called out injustice when he saw it, and as you might imagine, folks weren't too crazy about that kind of message. He spent much of his prophetic career on the run, fearing for his life, alone, scared, confused. In fact, it was at one of the lowest moments in his life that God showed up to him, came to him, and met him on a mountain. It was when Elijah was on the brink of giving up, content to basically die alone in the wilderness, rather than go back and face his accusers. And the word of the Lord came to him and spoke to him in that still, small voice. Likewise, God came to Moses on a mountain when he was at a low point. He had led the people out of, out of Egypt, displayed the power of God over what everyone assumed was the incomparable power of Pharaoh. But now they were out in the wilderness, having crossed over the Red Sea, and the people were restless, ravaged by hunger and thirst, consumed by fear. They longed to be back in the bondage of Egypt, where at least they had food. So eventually Moses ascends Mount Sinai, and God comes to him at this moment. 
and gives him the gift of the law and gives the people an identity. God tells the people, you are not slaves. You do not belong to Pharaoh. You belong to me. For both of these holy men who had these transformative experiences uh, on the mountain before the presence of God, for them, what happened on that mountain couldn't simply stay on the mountain. They, like Peter, James, and John, were called down from the mountain and back to the people who needed them the most. As tempting as it may have been to take Peter's suggestion to build some tents and take up residence on this holy and sacred mountain, the promise of God's presence and God's word is meant to be shared, not hoarded, not kept away in secret. The voice of God interrupts Peter's stumbling and bumbling and confirms to him and all who hear, and even us as the readers, what has already been revealed at Jesus' baptism, with one small addition. The voice of God says, this is my son, my beloved, and then adds, listen to him. In other words, Peter, shut up. What, what are you saying? No doubt Peter, James, and John were transformed radically by this experience. But as they make their way down the mountain, Jesus orders them to tell no one about what happened up there until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they are left to wonder what this rising from the dead business is all about. They still don't get it. Even though, even though the veil was peeled back ever so slightly and they got to see something no one else has ever seen since, they still don't quite get it. They still don't fully understand. Now this should hopefully be a great comfort to us. That even those who were closest to Jesus and who were given special access to some of the holiest moments, even they fell short. Even they didn't quite get it or have it all figured out. Now hopefully this will shatter any false notion we have that we are called to have all the answers or expected to have complete understanding. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that none of us have ever had an experience quite like what Peter, James, and John did. But the promise of God's presence is with, is with us and is no less real to us than it was to them. But all too often, we act like Peter, speaking out of turn from our limited understanding and seeking, often unintentionally, to hoard God's presence and promises for ourselves. But the promise of intimacy with God is a promise that is meant to be shared. What happens on the mountain can't stay on the mountain. We are, call we are called to follow Christ down the mountain, back into the valleys of the world that is so desperate for the promise of God's presence back to a world that is hungry, a world that is broken, a world for which Christ died. The secret is out. The Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So, let us follow Christ down the mountain and spread the word, spread the good news of the kingdom that is coming and that is already in our midst. Amen.